it's a job that you would go home every evening and just be thankful that you're alive because if you're not running away from a buffalo, a very aggressive buffalo, you found yourself in the middle of lions. If you're not in the middle of lions, you're being chased by the very same rhinos you're protecting. That's James Mwenda. We caught up with him in the middle of a safari he's leading through a remote part of Kenya. It's so remote that James has had to go out of his way to find a hut with an internet connection just to talk to us. If it's not a rhino, then it's an elephant. If it's not an elephant, it's a hippo. If then it's not an hippo, it's the bad guys, you know? They will blow away your life. James runs his own tourism company, but two years ago, he worked on a nature preserve in Kenya called Old Pejita. It's 90,000 acres full of all the animals James just mentioned, roaming around scrubland, rivers, and acacia trees. During the day, there are lots of tourists hoping to catch a glimpse of these wild animals. The park sits at the base of Mount Kenya, which is the second highest peak in Africa. I was literally one of the men that was tasked with the responsibility of taking care of the last remaining northern white rhinos on the planet. Because of poachers killing them for their horns, there are only seven northern white rhinos left in the world by the time James starts his gig as a caretaker. At that time, two of them used to live in the big enclosure where I started working. Sunni, who was the second last male, and Fatu, the youngest female northern white rhino. Come on, girl. Do you like me? Come on. Fatu, good girl, mama. Fatu, good girl. My initial job as a caretaker was to make sure they are safe, they are protected, but also we monitored their mating behaviors. The northern white rhino is one of two subspecies of white rhinoceros. The other, as you probably can guess, is the southern white rhino. From a distance, the two look pretty much the same. But get a closer look, and you'll notice the differences. The northern white rhinos have broader feet, because the Central African countries where they traditionally come from contain more tropical and marsh environments that they have to wade through. They also have a few more tufts of hair in their ears than their southern brethren. It's stuff you're not likely to notice if you're not spending a lot of time with these animals. But for seven years, that's exactly what James did. One day in 2014, when he went to check in on Sunni, I found him sleeping in a very abnormal posture. It's barely half. I was really curious when I saw that and I went close and did all the natural steps to determine if he was okay. <clears throat> I threw a stone, I threw a stick, I couldn't see any movement and then I decided I needed to go and, and touch him to feel if he was okay. And when I went so close, I realized that um, he wasn't breathing. And I called my team over the radio, I called the vet and they all came and it was determined that he had died. That was a turnaround moment to my career because when I saw him pass away, being the second last male, it was really hard. Today, there's only two northern white rhinos left on the planet, both of them female. Fatu, whom James mentioned taking care of earlier, and her mom, Najin. And for all James did during his years taking care of them, feeding them, bathing them, scratching their backs, warding off poachers, even setting up an Instagram account to raise awareness about their plight, the subspecies of northern white rhino is functionally extinct, meaning the population is not going to bounce back on its own, no matter what. I know there is a time that they're going to leave us, but I can't wrap my head around it. The fact that when they die, they will be the last female northern white rhino, and then they will be all gone forever. 
A lot of episodes of Without are about what the world might look like once we run out of something. In the age of the Anthropocene, there's no shortage of stuff that, by virtue of the way we've decided to live, we're in the process of using up or killing off. But sometimes, the magnitude of that loss becomes, to use a term coined by the writer and philosopher Timothy Morton and adopted by the company that produces this show, a hyperobject. Too big, too overarching to comprehend. And this episode, in a way, is about such a thing. Since the 1500s, roughly 881 animal species have gone extinct. That's according to records kept by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. But today, a whopping one million species are on the verge of extinction, with animals dying off at a rate not seen in the last 10 million years. It's an almost unfathomable loss, and rather than try to tackle it in some all-encompassing way, we've decided instead to do the opposite, to tell the story of a single subspecies, of which only two members remain, a number that makes it all but certain this animal will vanish within our lifetime. This is Without. I'm Omar Elakad. On today's show, the story of the last two northern white rhinos on the planet. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire, Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. James Moenda began working at Old Pejita 12 years ago when he was 24. He was hired as a ranger, and it wasn't easy work. James has war stories. Once he almost died on patrol when he happened upon a baby elephant. The mother was there too, and thought he was trying to steal her calf. It was a job that was filled with immense risk from the animals, the very same animals we were protecting, but also from the people who wanted to come and and kill these animals for their products. James was a ranger for three years before he was asked to take care of the northern white rhinos. I asked him to tell me a little more about them. Not statistics or scientific facts, just what they look like, what they sound like, that sort of thing. Rhinos make noises, yes. They will produce these squeals and there's a sound they make when they're calling each other. Like <laughs> when they sleep, they'll make a lot of noise, like they're breathing, because they're very heavy animals. In most cases with the white rhinos, they also pass a lot of gas when they rest. The rhino gas? James posted a pretty funny video of this on Instagram. So you can always tell there's a rhino around when, when you hear that. Northern white rhinos aren't actually white. They're gray. James says they're naturally shy animals and often run away when they see people. They spend much of their day eating grass or wallowing in mud. Their skin is void of hair, only on the ears and the the back of the tail. 
but they have a very thick skin. It's really rough in the upper part of their back, soft on the necks, on the belly, and on the flanks. Each animal has two horns at the end of its nose. They're used for protection against predators and to assert dominance among other rhinos. Their horn is made of keratin. They will normally sharpen it using tree stumps on the bushes and make it sharp. So they normally have two horns, one in front and one in the back. The one in front is relatively longer. Their front horn can grow up to three feet long. And that is what they are killed for. Just the same keratin that is on our fingernails and our hair. It wasn't all that long ago that there were hundreds of northern white rhinos. In fact, anybody who happened to be visiting a zoo in the 1950s probably came across one of them. As a matter of fact, they're very special white rhinos. When fully grown, second in size only to the elephant. It's Paul and his mate Chloe, two of a rare species of which only 1,000 remain in the whole of Africa, 600 of them in the Sudan. But since then, the decline has been both precipitous and malicious. These animals aren't dying off naturally. They're not succumbing to some inevitable change in the world. They're being wiped off the planet, and we're the ones doing it. The reasons why they've been killed is for all these silly and stupid reasons, you know. People believe that, especially in the Far East, that the brine horn is a cure for cancer, influenza, a myriad of other diseases. A single eight-pound white rhino horn can net a poacher $240,000 on the black market. Two horns, nearly half a million dollars. And we should state the obvious here. There's no scientific evidence that rhino horn powders cure cancer or the flu or really anything else. Another stupid reason they believe is that rhino horn is like an aphrodisiac, can get people viral. So the rich people in these countries will put a little bit powder on their wines and, and drinks. James says another one of the reasons northern white rhinos have suffered more than any other subspecies of rhinoceros is because of the political instability in the countries where they used to live. Northwestern Uganda, South Sudan, DRC, Congo, which was their strongholds, these are countries that have suffered for so long political wars and conflicts that has made their habitats prone to the bad guys and the rebel groups that go hiding in the bushes and take advantage of anything they can sell to sustain their wars and keep them surviving. By the time James starts taking care of the remaining northern white rhinos, there's only a handful left on Earth. And sure, that's tragic enough when you hear about it from a distance, but James isn't. He's there living it, every day. I was talking about extinction almost every day, from 6 in the morning to 6 in the evening. And I was equally frustrated sometimes that still people would come with their cameras and take selfies smiling that I met the last rhinos as if uh, it was something to be so proud of. The stress of watching a subspecies disappear in real time and not being able to do anything about it begins to take a toll on James. But he keeps spending long days with these animals, talking about extinction, usually to tourists who would pay to experience the novelty of a real-life die-off. In 2015, there are three rhinos left. Fatu, Najin, and Sudan. One of the most life-changing moments in my caretaking career was in 2015 when I was feeding Sudan. At this point, Sudan is 42 years old. He's the last male northern white rhino alive. He loved carrots and bananas in the evening, and I would always give him carrots and sit on the bucket and watch him as the sun was setting because we would feed him around 4.30 or 5. And this hit me so hard. I realized the emptiness that 
who it would have been going through as the last male Northern White China on the planet. Sudan lived another three years before he died. He leaves behind a daughter and a granddaughter, Najin and Fatu. They're the only two northern white rhinos left. For James, the loss of Sudan is so painful that it lands him in the hospital. Doctors urge him to take a break from his job. When Sudan passed, I got all these invitations to speak in all these different countries. And I decided to take up the role because I felt like I was representing Sudan and his voice. And I wanted to share the message. But around the same time Sudan dies, on an entirely different continent, there's a group of people at work on a last-ditch plan. They want to use science to do what had essentially become impossible for nature to carry out alone. I have a lot of artifacts. Uh, for example, some uh, deformed ivory we took out of an elephant. Or we have complete rhino horn, which we printed from 3D. I also have the portrait of the famous polar bear Knut. That's Thomas Hildebrandt. He's in his office at the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research in Berlin. Thomas is one of those people who's doing exactly what they should be doing with their professional lives. He wanted to be a veterinarian for farm animals at age six. In the 80s, he turns his focus to wildlife and then to wildlife reproduction. Reproduction in general is such an amazing event, and I'm really fascinated by that. But if you ask me for my favorite species, always elephants. Elephants are extremely intelligent. They have some mystery anatomical and functional features. The trunk is operated in an elephant with a bigger nerve than actually we find in the spine. Thomas owns half a dozen patents including one on how to artificially inseminate an elephant or a rhino through collecting oocytes from the ovaries of a female animal. What's an oocyte? An oocyte is an immature ovary cell. It's the thing you get before an egg cell. When you get an egg cell, you can fertilize it with sperm in a lab, and that becomes, in turn, an embryo. You can then take an embryo back into an animal's womb and have it grow. Basically, Thomas has focused his work on helping critically endangered species reproduce. So in a classical way, they would be lost. That is relevant for giant pandas, that is relevant for elephants or northern white rhinos. And therefore, we develop technologies to overcome that. And it is a little bit comparable what happened in 1978, where the first test tube baby was born in a human society. Louise Brown was a big achievement. 2010, there was a Nobel Prize for that. For the first time in history, a human being conceived in a laboratory has been delivered successfully. The world's first test tube baby was born here in Britain last night. It is a girl in excellent health, a beautiful, normal baby, the doctor said. The doctors hope that someday soon, she'll be just one of many so-called test tube babies. And we could demonstrate that with the application of the most advanced technologies based on assisted reproduction, but also stem cell technology and maybe even gene editing in the future, we have a very fair chance to reintroduce a healthy, genetically sound population of northern white rhinos back to the natural habitat. Like we said earlier, Sunni died in 2014. James Moenda was the one who found him. From this point on, it was clear that the population of northern white rhinos could not possibly come back on its own. So that year, Thomas and a bunch of scientists from around the world flew to Kenya. 
They wanted to visit the last rhinos to see if there was anything they could do to save them. And we came up with this master plan how to do that. The scientists would convene a meeting of experts in Vienna to try and save the rhinos using the same kind of technology that produced that first test tube baby. They'd extract northern white rhino cells and use them to grow an embryo in a lab. Then they'd implant that embryo in a southern white rhino so she could give birth to the calf. Then the German government gave us 6 million euro for running this program. We instantly produced a lot of viable embryos and we have the chance to go back to Kenya every quarter year, plus the embryo transfer events when the bull is indicating a female need. We should pause for a moment to say that all of this is pretty wild, no pun intended. Basically, Thomas and his team would have to quite literally collect genetic material from inside these massive animals. A process that is exactly as awkward and invasive as you might imagine. You have to know that the ovaries are about two meters inside this gigantic animal. The northern white rhino has a weight of about two tons. If you're not familiar with the metric system, what we're talking about here is a 4,000 pound animal with ovaries that are six and a half feet inside her body. All the technologies which are developed for women or for horses or cattle are not applicable for oocyte collection in a rhinoceros. So we had to come up with a completely different approach. That completely different approach? Thomas sent us a video of his team deploying it, collecting oocytes from Fatu. Fatu's lying down in her enclosure. She's sedated, connected to a bunch of tubes, with a respirator and a blue towel covering her eyes and nose. Thomas is doing an ultrasound and looking at a laptop to find her oocytes so he can extract them. There are half a dozen other scientists and researchers here too, some wearing long plastic gloves. After they get the oocytes and put them in a plastic bottle, there's a powerful microscope set up where Thomas can make sure they got what they came for. This whole thing is happening because Fatu's ovaries work, but she can't have her own babies since she has tumors on her uterus. Najin is also infertile. Once Fatu's oocytes are extracted, they're going to be airlifted to a lab in Italy. And there, they're going to be fertilized with frozen sperm from northern white rhino males who have died. Then the cells are grown into embryos and test tubes that can later be implanted in rhinos who act as surrogate moms. We will collect a new surrogate female from the wild using a helicopter to move her then to a confined area. The surrogate moms are southern white rhinos who will have to be rounded up when the time is right. Sixteen months later, a baby should be born. And shortly after that, we would try to introduce this little baby to the northern white rhinos so it can learn the language and the behavior from the last remaining northern white rhinos. That would be Fatu and Najin. We want to preserve the social heritage, which is also, next to the genes, a very important element of a species. If you imagine humans without any social knowledge growing up in a basement, only fed from outside, they would be not humans, they would be a kind of monster. If Thomas and his team are successful, there's a very good chance that within a couple of years, we will see the first offspring of a nearly extinct subspecies. They've got more than 20 embryos cryopreserved already, so transferring one to a surrogate is imminent. But here's where things become a little more complex. Because this isn't about hard science anymore. It's not just about the technology or the mechanics of collecting genetic samples. 
It's also about what exactly we're helping create. And more generally, whether novel scientific processes are really the way we're going to offset all these dying species. Species whose collapse is in large part driven by what we've already done to the world. There's a lot of talk going on at the moment about doing this for woolly mammoths. So taking mammoth DNA and putting it inside an elephant and seeing if we can get a mammoth out. There's also a big project in Australia looking at the thylacine, the uh, Tasmanian wolf, which is another species that was driven to extinction by overhunting by humans. Dr. Natalie Cooper is a scientist at the Natural History Museum in London. She studied northern white rhinos extensively for an exhibit at the museum. Natalie even visited Sudan before he died. The technology's really not there yet. It's very, very expensive. And I would argue, what's the point of it, really, when we could be using that money to actually conserve the species that we still have and that are really in trouble? So money is a solution to a lot of those problems. Whereas you know, going away and creating a woolly mammoth, to me, whilst sounds kind of cool, it's probably not really a solution to any problems. But it's not just that the technology is brand new, relatively speaking or that it's really, really expensive. This work also raises thorny questions about what exactly we're creating. Part of what Thomas Hildebrand is advocating for involves implanting northern white rhino embryos into southern white rhinos. So even if the process works, is that new animal really the same subspecies of northern white rhino? And does it even matter? It's a philosophical question, perhaps more than a scientific one. What is a rhino? What is a northern white rhino? So not only would it be born within the southern white rhino, potentially, when it's born, it also won't have any others of its subspecies to interact with. And so there's quite a lot of differences between the southern white rhino and the northern white rhino in how they sort of speak to each other. They have quite distinct behaviors. And if there's no other northern white rhinos there, will they learn those things? So will they be behaviors that are kind of innate within their genetic code, which some things are, or will they be things that they need to learn and they'll never be able to learn those? So like you say, is that a northern white rhino or is it something else that we've created? Let's be clear, it isn't like Thomas back in Berlin hasn't thought about these questions. He knows these efforts are novel, he knows they're expensive, and he knows there's a million other uses for all that time and money. We could utilize this money to build schools, to educate children, to feed children. But in this case of the northern white rhino, which is a keystone species. By keystone species, Thomas means northern white rhinos are kind of like the top dogs of their ecosystem, even if there aren't very many of them. They wallow in mud, which creates natural watering holes. Their waste helps distribute seeds, fertilize the ground, and keep insects alive. The places where they graze create narrow paths for antelope to escape from big cats like lions and leopards. Lose the northern white rhinos, and you lose a lot of other species. And therefore, we have to fix this problem. We have to yeah, develop new tools. We have to travel quite a lot. However, if you compare what the Mars mission cost or what the war in Ukraine with Russia cost, I think uh, that is a minimum. And we're doing something which is really important for the next generation and the generation after because we're fixing one of the most complex ecosystems in the world. This isn't just about a single subspecies dying in a vacuum. 
Like every other facet of the natural world, the northern white rhino is connected to a system of life that extends much further than its own population. Like we said earlier, the territories where the northern white rhino used to roam no longer exist as they once did. Central Africa, where this rhino was living for several million years, is gone, and that means the plants losing the distributor, the insects losing the feces producer, the birds losing their platform, the little antelopes losing the landscape architect making roads through the narrow grass and the jungle. So I think uh, the consequences of having no northern white rhino is quite severe. And there's one more potential consequence of losing this animal, one that most people probably don't consider, but which could wreak havoc on human beings in a much more direct way. I want to remind you that this ecosystem was a source for HIV that came out of Central Africa, Ebola came out of Central Africa, and there will be many more diseases coming out of this very complex part of nature if we disturb it further. And we call it the vortex effect, which has a really severe impact on our own life. Even if we live thousands of kilometers far away in urban cities, that has an impact. Conservationist Robert Lacey came up with the idea of the vortex effect in the 1990s. Lacey believed the extinction of megavertebrates like the northern white rhino would eventually have catastrophic consequences, that it would lead to a significant disturbance in, or even the destruction of, entire ecosystems. If you take an animal from the top hierarchy, you will not see an instant effect, but nature will react on that and modulate, and you will have a lot of sudden side effects which are not very pleasant, which makes the entire stability of the ecosystem much more fragile, and it is not good. <laughs> it's not good. One of the really interesting things about talking to Thomas is that he's working on this project that relies on a relatively untested technology. There's no guarantee that any of this will be successful, that we'll be sitting around in a few decades talking about the hundreds of new northern white rhinos in the wild. And yet, there is no doubt in Thomas's mind that the subspecies is coming back. He is certain, certain in a way that almost nobody else working with these animals seems to be. There is already a very good chance that we have in two, three years the first offspring of this nearly extinct species. We will save them. We will save them. I'm completely positive on that. And maybe he's right. Maybe this is going to work. But then what? What about all those things that led to this die-off in the first place? Like the destruction of habitat, the civil wars, the black market price tags for rhino horn? How do we ensure we're not just throwing technological band-aids on wound after wound, rather than addressing the behaviors that are causing them? More on that after the break. Stay with us. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Welcome back. I asked Dr. Natalie Cooper, the scientist at London's Natural History Museum, if all of these efforts, the quarterly visits to Kenya, the invasive procedures on Fatu, the helicopter roundups of surrogates, the lab work in Italy, the six million euros from the German government, if this is what it means to bring the northern white rhino back, is it worth it? So if we really wanted to successfully bring back the northern white rhino, we'd have to deal with all of the problems that cause the northern white rhino to go extinct in the first place. So firstly, need to deal with poaching. And of course, that has various political and legal things that would need to be sorted out. But also socioeconomic factors are a big part of why people feel like they need to go out and poach these animals. At the same time, like everywhere in the world, habitat loss is a massive problem. And so you'd need to make sure that you had intact habitat and particularly sort of big animals like rhinos and elephants. They need a really large area to range around where they could be safe from poachers as well. All of this is really difficult work. And difficult in a way that is very different from the kind of project Thomas Hildebrand and his team are undertaking. It's expensive. There's very little political will to do any of it. And in fact, in many ways, the trajectory of modern society involves doing almost the exact opposite of all the things Natalie just laid out. On top of that, there's, well, human nature. There's this concept um, that we refer to as the umbrella species. And so the panda and the tiger are really great examples of this. What the conservation organizations have been doing is they've realized everybody loves pandas, they're very cute. Everybody loves tigers, they're very cool. So if you can convince people to give money to a tiger reserve, and they take up a huge amount of room, they need massive, massive areas in order to be able to hunt effectively and survive. At the same time, you're kind of on the side, actually conserving all those other species that are in the same place as that tiger. Natalie says using the umbrella species concept and a poster child like a rhino to raise money and awareness seems to be working, and she's not opposed to that. It gets more complicated if you were to say, let's just give up on tigers, they're screwed. Like, let's not bother with tigers, let's just save a bunch of their DNA and in 10 years or so, we'll create some new tigers. Let's not worry about actually preserving those habitats. And the biggest issue with that, of course, is if we don't preserve those habitats and they're gone, where would you put those tigers? Like, would it be morally and ethically okay to de-extinct them if we haven't actually solved the problems that were causing them to go extinct? And here we reach the scariest part of all of this. Because we're not just going to have to answer this question for tigers or pandas or northern white rhinos. We are on the cusp of something much, much bigger. 
Even with a million species currently at risk of extinction, the next few decades may bring about changes on the planet that make that number seem like a drop in the bucket. Climate change is pushing species all around the world to alter their ways of life. So they can either find ways of adapting their physiology to be able to cope with these higher temperatures or these more extreme weather events, or they're able to move into new places. Organisms that we would normally have seen in quite you know, warm tropical waters starting to move further north. I'm sure in the US it's happening, and certainly in the UK we're getting records of fishes, for example, that have never been seen as far north as the UK before because the oceans are warming and things are moving to where the, the temperature suits them. And so at the moment that seems to be what most species are doing, but eventually that's just going to not be feasible because they're either going to come up against the end of the land or they're going to come up against you know, human-dominated landscapes that they can't live in. And obviously stuff that lives on the ice is already struggling because if there's no ice, the ice is all melting, then there's no habitat for them. And so we're kind of seeing this sort of buffering effect at the moment. But once that buffer is gone, we're probably going to see a lot of extinctions or certainly at least pretty extreme declines in the numbers of individuals of species really quite rapidly. And that's really worrying. As of right now, as we put this episode together, there are two living northern white rhinos on planet Earth, Fatu and Najin. Perhaps by the time our episode comes out, Thomas Hildebrand and his team will have made a miraculous breakthrough, and maybe the number will go up. Or perhaps nature will have run its course, and the number will drop, and there will be a subspecies on this earth of which there is only a single member. Come on, Mama. Good girl. James Moenda misses Najin and Fatu, so he still visits them at Old Pejida. Good girl, Mama. Good girl. Even though his time working on the reserve haunts him to this day. No one wants to be part of a project that doesn't seem to have success at the end. The fact that they were all dying out with no hope of ever coming back was the sad part of, of the whole part of my career. Good girl. Taking tourists on safari is good money and less stressful than watching something you love slowly disappear. Because for James, the extinction of the northern white rhino wasn't abstract. It wasn't far away. The story of the northern white rhino is by necessity a story about specificity. That's what happens when you can count the number of living animals in a subspecies on one hand. But it's also as general a story as there is about what we've done to this planet. Because unless there's a sweeping change to the way human beings interact with the wider natural world, this is a story that's going to be told hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of times over the next few decades. The individual species different, but the outcome the same. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It is written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Abby Fentress Swanson with editorial support from Emil Klein. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna with production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners, and research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. I think, yeah, young people are awesome, and uh, 
they they really should just be in charge. It's it's us old people who are causing all the problems. So young people are awesome. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>